evening, good afternoon. My name is Margaret Ocheng. Most people around the church community know me as Meg because that's also how my family call me. So that's always, oh, Margaret or Meg. It's like, it's just always, when I think I'm in like with family or friends, I'm called Meg. When I'm at work, I'm called Margaret. It helps my head cope with knowing where I am so I can behave myself. So around church, I'm called Meg, so it gives you a cue that I am under no obligation to behave myself. Okay, <laughs> okay so uh, yeah, I was, I was asked to share with you as part of, um, as part of the, the theme of this uh, conference, Connecting with God's, God's Heart, and we're talking about God's Heart for different issues, including inclusion. And so I've been asked to focus particularly on, um, on racial inclusion. Sorry, I have jumbled up my notes. If you give me one moment. <laughs> I'm sorry, this thing is being recorded. They have to delete this part. <laughs> okay, sorry. So, I'll start by just a little brain teaser. It's very late in the day, so let's do something that is not quite preachery. For example, I'm gonna read out a series of words, and I'm gonna split this room in the middle. And, and you're going to judge which side are getting this correct and which side are not getting it correct. So it's a competition coming, folks. Okay, so I'm going to read out a series of words. And for each word, you have to give me very quickly a country or a part of the world that you associate with, those with that word. Now, this is not the most simple exercise because also I am Kenyan. So, so, so I might also be thinking I'm pronouncing one word when what you're hearing completely different word. For example, in my Kenyan accent, boat is, I boat, a pair of sunglasses, I am riding on a boat. For me, it's the same thing. As a British person, you're listening to me like, what do you mean boat or bot? I'm like, it's the am I not saying boat? I'm saying boat. So I keep <laughs> arguing with you because it, for me, it sounds exactly the same thing. So you have to figure out which word am I exactly <laughs> talking about? Then, then you give me a, a country or a part of the world. Are you ready? Okay, wine. France. Okay, so you lost that one. Yeah, yeah, you need to go. Yeah, so there, France. Okay, give me your word. <laughs> Italy. Okay, so this side takes, so you keep scores of which side got it first. Okay. <laughs> Tsunami. Yeah, there you go. They got it first. Tsunami. <laughs> All right, be ready. Come on, wake up now. Okay, Coco. Ghana. Switzerland. Okay, um, uh, correct. Switzerland, Coco, Ghana. Yeah. Who, which side do we give it to? <laughs> All right, wake up. We're halfway. <laughs> There's still hope. Okay, cigar. Cuba. Yes, we'll, we'll give you both. That was quite straightforward. Um, war. Ukraine. Afghanistan. Yes, they, they went first. Okay, ballet. France. There you go. We're still thinking. Oh, yeah. Russia. Oh, yeah, Russia. <laughs> yeah, okay, you took it because you got it first. Safari. Kenya. I'll give it to you because you said Kenya and I'm Kenyan. You should have known how to do this. <laughs> South Africa. Okay, fine, fine. We're splitting the middle. <laughs> Jungle. Australia. Australia. Yeah, you, you're still sleeping on that one, eh? 
right, drought. Ethiopia. Africa, Ethiopia, yeah. Yeah, we agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one is going to say the British summer. <laughs> Do you see? This is also a possibility. But th th yeah, so <laughs> this is what we say. We are facing drought since you know, recorded 1974. This is what happens every summer when the sun shines for three days. <laughs> 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 so, what are we trying to do here? This exercise, I'm trying to illustrate explicitly some of what we call implicit associations, so connections that our brains make between words and places or concepts. This, this apparently is what makes us um, intelligent beings because other creatures or other animals are less able to make as many associations or store as many associations in their brains. But human beings have this massive capacity to make these cognitive shortcuts between things, between words and places and people. And so when you are in a situation where you know, you're exposed to, to that situation, your brain has stored something about it. So you are able to solve a problem much, much quicker because there's stored information somewhere at the back of your brain. Right? So, for example, if I showed you this, you were supposed to have shouted what this is. Coffee mug. Yeah, coffee mug. But what if I'd never seen one of these? Then it's, yeah, then there's, there's really nothing there. Now, so, so that, that part of your brain that immediately knows what this is, is also the part of your brain that stores all sorts of information that it shouldn't actually store. It also means that if I tell you the wrong thing about someone or about a place, then that will always be what you think about that person or that place. So for example, when I say drought, where did you think? Africa, why is that? Is Africa the only part of the world? You didn't say Sahara or you didn't say actually the British drought, which is supposed to be the one that is closest to your experience because you live in this country. But because every year we see all these images on the television telling us how the children of Africa are dying because of drought, <laughs> our brains start to form these associations. And so when we see somebody from that part of the world, how are we likely to frame them? not based on who they are, but perhaps based on what we have been told historically about them. So think about what you know, history in school taught you about different people from different parts of the world, but not just what you were taught, also what they did not teach you. Because this is also a part of that, a part of the, if they did not teach you something, then you're leaning on, your brain is gonna be scanning for the nearest information that you have. You start to fill in those gaps. So if I ask you, <coughs> historically, what has television, what you learned in school, your own experiences, the rumors and the gossip that you have heard, taught you about different people groups, different racial groups that exist in the world? What have you been taught about black people? What have you been taught about white people? Because when we talk about this, people tend to think we're only talking about the people who are not white. You know, white people are also a race. Okay, so what have you been taught about white people? And what were you been taught about other people? What were black people taught about black people? And white people taught about black people? And white people taught about white people? What were black people taught about white people, for example? You'll be surprised that we've all been taught about the same things about each other. Black people were taught about the same, sometimes they're taught about the same thing about themselves as white people are being taught about them. 
And so think about what that looks like. If you can go back in history, think about colonialism and slavery and all these other things that have had a massive and very, very negative legacy on how we frame each other even today. And those associations are still stored at the back of our brains. And so sometimes when you see someone from a different part of the world, you're less likely to deal with them as a person, but you're more likely to deal with them based on some information that is stored in your brain. You start to think, are they going to be good at this? Based on, I've never actually seen one of them good at something like this since I started attending a commission church. Never seen a black woman preach before. <laughs> We're going to be all right. <laughs> you see what I mean? Because that is what, you know, your brain has never stored that information. Black woman, preacher. So, but maybe this changes after this. Okay, black woman, all right. So that's why we do it sometimes is to change those associations where that information is missing. You're going to rely on, okay, maybe I don't know about black women and preaching, but I know about black women and something else. And if that thing is not positive, then straight away you're not expecting something very positive. I'll give you an example. So my daughter is six now. When she was four, we have a tradition in our house where Friday nights we watch movies. We eat takeaway, which we shouldn't. It's not very healthy. And then we watch movies. We eat what we call pretty puddings. <laughs> Sometimes we make them ourselves. And then we watch a movie together. And uh, well, this one evening, we watched a movie. And, and this, I can't even remember what this movie was. I just remember that there was a man that was, the girl who's supposed to be the hero of the story, she was being chased around by this tall man who was trying to steal something from her. And she was like, tasked with, you know, you know, this kind of movie is very, very common. Anyway, so we watched this movie and we, the girl prevails in the end and she's a hero, yay. And then we finished the movie and then my four-year-old asks me, Mommy, are Russians evil? You see, up until that point, this information was also stored in my brain exactly this way, but I had never thought about it. The fact that my daughter, my four-year-old, asked me because this man in the movie was actually Russian. And I realized that Western movies, and I want you to think about this, always portray Russians as evil. The hitman, the guy who deals drugs, the bouncer who has scars all over, his name is always Dmitry or Chekhov or Yuri, the spy woman who's going to steal everything, who's also doubling up in prostitution. Her name is always Tatiana. Have you thought about this? And I knew, I think this information was told in my brain, but until my four-year-old actually said it, that's when I realized, so this is how we do this to people. So I had to stop and I had to have a really long conversation with my four-year-old that sometimes movies and the things that we watch and things that people say teach us really negative things about people. And I had to really think about which Russian I know. Luckily, I did find one Russian I know, and I had to tell a really positive story about this Russian. And you know, funnily enough, there's now a Russian boy in my daughter's class. And she now goes on and on about how what a lovely boy he is. <laughs> had I not challenged this, Imagine my daughter grows up to be someone really important, which I believe, I hope, I pray, she will be. And she's interviewing for a role. And in walks a man called Yuri. And he has a scar on his face, right? But maybe this Yuri, when he was a teenager, he had a terrible road accident and maybe left him with a scar. And maybe he's a really nice and gentle man who absolutely is competent and deserves this job. But because I did not have this conversation with my daughter and let this association stay in my daughter's brain, Yuri walks into this interview. My daughter has an information stored at the back of her mind that Yuri is Russian. Yuri, Russian equals evil. And then sees a scar 
and straight away, ah, 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 Yuri is going nowhere. She would not offer Yuri, who otherwise should have this role. So people like Yuri, over time, will not get certain roles because they've been cast in a role of evil by television. When we're talking about God's heart for inclusion, this is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about all the things that history has taught us that are actually not correct nor godly, but which we have continued to consume and remain unchallenged in our minds. Now, I want you to think about what associations, are you aware of the associations in your brain about people who look like me? What associations are in your brain about people who look like you? Unless we ask ourselves these conversations, we will continue to carry out behaviors that disadvantage people or cast people in roles that God has not cast them into. And this is what's happening in our world. Connecting with God's heart for inclusion enables us to see what God sees when he sees different people, what God sees when he sees Yuri. Connecting with God's heart is not colorblind. It sees people in their totality. It doesn't ignore the scar on Yuri's face. It sees the scar, but it also wants to understand the story behind that scar without assuming that that scar is there because Yuri is evil. Connect with God's heart for inclusion opens us to listen to each other's stories and to see each other as God truly sees us. And if we see each other as God truly sees us, we can open up opportunities for each other and create the world that Jesus actually wants Christians to live in. We see people in their circumstances, in their color, in their culture. And when we allow ourselves to see, we are able to connect. And when we are able to connect, we can connect with that which is whole in each other, but also that which is broken because all these things exist in the human experience. We can rejoice in the whole and we can weep and prayerfully mend that which is broken. And in a nutshell, connecting with God's heart for inclusion leads us to care. And I'm going to spend the remaining time we have to talk about this concept of care. I want to say there is hope for us to be the generation that connects in a way that helps the world to see race and ethnicity as God intended it to be. As a representation of wonder and diversity of creation, just walk outside in the spring or in the autumn, you see this wonder that God truly did not mean for anything to exist in the same color. We see it in creation. We don't see puppies separating themselves and saying, oh, these are the brown puppies. This is the, the brown puppies are superior than the darker skin or the darker fur. But we don't, animals don't have time for this, but we do as humans. And yet we are supposed to be the intelligent ones. Our world and our cultures teach us to disconnect with each other, to disconnect with each other's experiences. We cease to care. We cease to see the challenges that different groups of people can face in society. And in, in the Gospels, uh, Jesus talks about the, the, the parable of the lost sheep. And I think for me, this is a parable of care. In Matthew 15, verse three to seven, it says, then Jesus told them this parable. So he's talking to his disciples. He says, suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you 
that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know, when issues around race and ethnicity and where we have turned a blind eye as Christians are brought up, God wants to see repentance sometimes for the things we have seen and for the things that we have failed to see. When one of us repents, there's more joy in heaven than when 99 of us fail to repent where we need to. Jesus doesn't ask why the sheep is lost. The good shepherd is not concerned. So why are the sheep always lost? I've shown them the way so many times. It's just the way they are. They can't figure out how to get home on time. A bad shepherd does that, blames the sheep for the systems and the structures that causes the sheep to be lost. A bad shepherd creates practices and culture, modes of worship, preaching series that are centered around the experiences of the 99. The bad shepherd cares not for the experiences of the one, but blames the one for those experiences. Jesus came to challenge the assumptions of the bad shepherd, the assumptions why all resources are spent on the experiences of the 99, very little is spent to understand the experiences of the one. Jesus came to challenge this system, a system that will not ask why we do not see people represented in community life in our workplaces, in leadership roles, for example. Jesus cares for the one and everything stops when the one is not in the room. And this is how we connect with God's heart for inclusion, that everything stops. Think about the people who are, this is not just about race, there are loads of communities and experiences that we do not, that are missing from our ways of life that will not reach out to with the gospel. But that's really why Jesus has come. He hasn't come for us, the 99. We are in the room, we will be fine. We are challenged to seek out the one, the vulnerable one, the one who is still cut out. And when I was thinking about this story of care, I thought about one summer's afternoon, I, was, I got on a train at working where I live to go to, to London. And this train runs between Basingstoke and London, so it stops at working. Anyone here from Basingstoke? Right, so I'm just, you tell them when you see them that they were featured massively on this sermon. Anyway, so <laughs> I got on the train in the middle of the day and there's no more train carriage, there are loads of people in the carriage, but a group of girls caught my attention, they were sat at the back of, of this carriage. There were three black Muslim girls. I knew they were Muslim because they were wearing their hijabs. And um, I could have placed that maybe their parents are from Somali or Djibouti or Eritrea, that's the same part of Africa that I am from, the Horn of Africa where Kenya is, so it's kind of interested. And these girls were talking, I think they were going out on a day out just to um, enjoy themselves. Um, and so I sat opposite them and they were talking to each other. And it caught my attention what they were talking about. They were talking about their experiences. And in my mind, if teenage girls are on a train going to London for a beautiful day out, then what they were talking about did not seem like the normal conversation they should be having. 
They were talking about things such as imposter syndrome and worries about assumptions that people make about them. And it was all these really deep conversations and fears and all this stuff that had to do with their identity. And I, had a do I have a daughter and I certainly, as a mother, felt really sad. I wondered whether when my daughter is a teenager and she's going out with her friends, should she not just be a girl in the world talking about, so I asked people in the other room, what, what would they be talking about if they're white middle class girls? Tell me, what would they have been talking about? Some of you might, you probably would know this. So, <laughs> let's not ask you. Anyone who knows what? Love Island. Love this is exactly, this is exactly what people said in that room. Boys, exactly. This is what I would have expected. Because I've also been in spaces where they're white, teenage girls, and this is the kind of thing they talk about. This was not what the black girls were talking about. The black girls were really concerned as to what people thought about them and what repeating things that people had said to them and what they worried people was gonna say about them. And then they turned the conversation to a group of boys that I thought were probably their cousins or their friends. And one of these, these girls could have been 18 and then maybe another one was probably 16 or 17 and there was one who was younger, 13 or 14. And no, so now, this was three years ago, they could be actually the same age group that is represented here. These girls could be at university, you could be working with them somewhere. So these are not issues that are removed from us. These are issues of people who live, you know, some of you know people who live in Basingstoke. So I'm not talking about another country, I'm talking about this country. And the 16, 17 year old said, you know, I really do wish to tell them, so these boys, I think is related to them, that you know, they probably shouldn't hang out together all the time. Because I worry that when people see too many black people in one space, they become very suspicious of them. They just think that they're up to no good. This is what this girl said. And the 18, 19 year old got really angry, rightfully so, and asked her, would you say that if there were white boys? But of course she's like, of course I wouldn't because they're not white boys. That's what I'm talking about. Started arguing and arguing. I'm like, you're going for a nice day out. Look at what this is doing to you. You don't have even a private moment when you can just be girls. I'm thinking about my daughter 10 years from now. She's gonna be those girls unless we do something about this. And so I crossed over and I went and sat with them. And I, I literally kind of made a joke of it. I was like, and I said, yeah, okay, now there's four black people here. Now there's too many of us. Let's see what the train carriage does. <laughs> of course, they burst out and we laughed and we lightened the moment. Funnily enough, a few people walked out of the carriage. I was like, <laughs> there they go. Okay, fine. We now have this space to do. <laughs> to just speak. So we started chatting. I just started chatting them. Just, I can't even remember what we were saying. I was just chatting, told them about my job and where I was going, they, they told me more about, I don't know, we just chatted and kind of just became a very light moment in the end. And I remember as the train was coming into Waterloo, the, the oldest one told me, you know, thank you. I, I just feel like we should pay you for the conversation we've just had. This, this kind of showed me, I was like, wow, like these, these girls are not very used to people caring about them, to people loving, to strangers loving them, although I'm a black stranger, there's, there's probably not just, they're not used to this. Actually, I just, I said, and I should be thanking you, you gave me your time, I've had a lovely time chatting with you. 
And as I got up to, to kind of get off the train at Waterloo, this girl, she was about my height, she's 17, 18, she's very tall. She looks me in the eye and she says, I need to ask you a question. I just want to ask you a question because you told me you work in diversity and inclusion. I said, yeah, go away, ask away. And she asks me, do you really think that white people care? Now, I just, my heart just sank. Why? One, because she asked me. I'm like, in what kind of a world that does a child grow up to the age of 18 wondering whether a group of people care? Who is it that has failed this child like this? Is it her teachers? Is it the girls she was with in school? Is it the people who maybe do the kind of job? Who has failed her? Who has failed her family? Who has failed her parents? Where is the church in her community? Why is she asking this question? This question is a question that frames failure on so many levels, on so many people's parts. Why didn't someone do something at some point to stop this girl asking me this question now? And... I remember feeling the responsibility to tell her the truth, but also to give her hope. And I hope when I finish this talk, I will have done those two things. So I told this girl what I think is the truth. I told her I have encountered in my role, in my work, three types of people. The first type of people I want to tell you about are the people who absolutely don't care. I said to her, you know, white people are people, so let's start there. So I have met these three types of people, generally. People who don't care. And then I have met people who absolutely do care. And there's a third group of people, people who want to care. And it's this third group of people that I, I for them, that I do this work because they do want to care, but they don't know what care means when it comes to people from different backgrounds or different types of races, and that's why I do this job. And it kind of, I think she got me. So yes, there are people who don't care. And then I did the African mother thing. Some of you know the African mother thing. I'm probably the only old mother here. <laughs> so, so I'll do the African mother thing. You know, African mothers never miss an opportunity to turn something into a big life's lesson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had to do it. There was no one else to do it, okay? <laughs> so I said to her, but darling, life continues whether people care or not. And your life must continue whether people care or not. You cannot wait. also you cannot wait because God cares and I knew she'd connect with that concept of God because she is a Muslim at this moment as you can imagine it's floods of tears on her face and I'm about to burst out crying so I scrum out of the train and and this moment remains with me for probably the rest of my life because then I now know we have to create spaces where we have this conversation, where we ask people, do you care? Have you cared? Have you cared enough? Are there people that you have known who believe in their lives wondering whether you care? 
Did you ever show that you care? Do we show as Christians, as churches, that we care? Maybe we do. I think we care, but do we show that we care? You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, saw moments when people that were respectable and people of faith did not care. And in the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, he confronts Apostle Peter. Peter, on whom God built his church, came to a moment where he did not care. And I'll read it to you. Paul says, Galatians 2, 11 to 13, he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, he actually doesn't bother to call him Peter anymore. He calls him his old name because he's like, I don't know who this guy is anymore. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. You know, that Peter whom we all respect, he too fell for this. For before certain men came from James, so James was another apostle was somewhere else at this point, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So God had saved Peter, and Peter had seen that there is only now one man in Christ, Jew or Gentile, we are all together, the racism is gone. And then these men come from James to join Peter and Paul in Antioch. And this is what happened. They bring their racism with them. Now see what it does. But when they arrived, when these men came, these men were Christians. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So the circumcision group were the people who upheld Jewish superiority and Gentile inferiority. And these two were never to mix because the Gentiles would in some way contaminate the Jewish people with their superiority. And so Peter, although God has worked in his heart and he actually believed this is actually not true, when these men are now introduced to his church, he completely forgets this. And now he doesn't want to be seen with the Gentiles. Now he stops to care. And this, this is what happened, it spreads. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So Paul calls it what it is. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now Barnabas is one that is known in the scriptures as the son of encouragement. You know, when racist people invade your church, even the son of encouragement very quickly becomes the son of racism. When we create spaces for people who have ideologies that shouldn't be in the church, all of us are at risk of being led astray. So, if we are to care, what would that look like? Sorry, I've lost my notes again. <laughs> if we are to care, we are to ask these questions. How has the church let so many people down? How have we, as adults, let children down so much? How have teachers let students down so much? How have managers let their employees down so much? How have churches let people down so much, such that we have children in our communities wondering whether one group of people care or not? God's heart for inclusion is about connecting with the one, the one on the margin, the one who history has historically cast out as not to be cared for. And I could go on and on in what ways and what examples these issues still exist in the church today. 
to apologize. So, as I conclude, the Bible gives us a way in which we can care and a way in which we can frame these issues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 24 to 27, it says, it explains why we must care, particularly for those who history has not positively attended. You know, when you hear people say white, white lives matter, yes, it does. But this verse actually nails why we shouldn't say that. It says, while our presentable parts need no special treatment, this is the Bible, not me, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes for the one. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor, giving greater attention to the parts that that attention has been taken away. Because one culture was to be upheld as superior to another. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part of our society feel we do not care, we all live in a society that does not care. Every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of that body. So that moves us to do something. So if you wanted to care and reconnect with God's heart for inclusion, what would we do? We come from a place of denial that these issues are not still present in our society today to a place where we can do some soul searching and recognize that which we have not been able to, to what we, that which we have not been able to see because it was someone else's experience. That's the first thing from denial to really true soul searching. How have I not cared? Number two, we commit to understanding the different ways in which these issues still are present in our schools, in our workplaces, in our churches, and in our communities. We create spaces like this where somebody can tell a story that makes us wonder whether we have been a part of the solution or a part of this problem. When God puts a finger on something in your heart about this, you repent. You connect with his heart and say, I'm really sorry, God, help me to care again. You may have to speak up when you see Peter's hypocrisy like Paul did. Because to not speak means Peter would have continued to isolate himself and to perpetuate the racism that Christ had already spoken to him about. Then we have to promote and advocate for activities and policies and spaces and the people that are helping to create this change. Instead of opposing them, we are to love and nurture and honor and offer our support. And finally, we commit to praying for our generation. Who knows that we might be the generation that truly, truly shows that we can care. Because if we care, things will change. 
that hidden prejudices in our minds and hearts may be dealt with by, our, by Christ, that we may be released to love and connect with each other through the love of Christ, that we may build the kingdom of God where everyone feels loved and cared for for such a time as this. I will stop there. Thank you.